Open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, now concerning spiritual gifts. We're going to read verses 1 through 11, then we're going to pray and we'll get into the message. So open your Bibles, open up, if you're looking at something electronic, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And let's stand, if you're physically able to stand, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 1. Paul writes, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. 1 Corinthians 12, 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. And to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the effecting of miracles. And to another, prophecy. And to another, the distinguishing of spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. May the Lord write His word upon our hearts. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer, Father? Thank you so much for this transition in 1 Corinthians as we move now into a study of spiritual gifts and the body of Christ and the, the beautiful body metaphor that we are one body. We are diverse, we are different, but we are one in Christ. And you are a gift-giving God. Father, you gave your only son. You so love the world that you gave your only son that whoever believes in him, they won't perish, they'll have everlasting life. And Jesus, when you were getting ready to ascend to heaven, you told your church, your disciples, I won't leave you alone. I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And you said, I will send another, a comforter, a helper, the Holy Spirit, and he will live in you. And he will guide you and help you and strengthen you. And Lord, we thank you that though you're at the right hand of the Father, interceding for your church, you have given us your spirit. You've baptized us in the Spirit. You've regenerated us by the Spirit. And you distribute spiritual gifts to us so that we can accomplish your will. And that is an awesome gift. Life is a gift, but new life in Christ is an awesome gift as well. Spiritual gifts and just all that you bless us with, Lord. You're, you're a God who continues to give to us. You're faithful even when we are faithless. And even when we disengage our gifts, you're still faithful to renew and refresh us and use us again. So I pray that you would have your way this morning and give us understanding, give us a heart to obey your word, and help us as a congregation to bring you glory. In Jesus' name I pray and all God's people said, amen. Now concerning spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts. In our last study, we saw that the Corinthians were bringing their biases into the church and they were having what we would consider like a potluck leading into the Lord's Supper. And based upon socioeconomic factors, because there was really no middle class at that time, poor people were being mistreated in something that they called the Lord's Supper. 
The rich were looking down on the poor. They weren't sharing with the poor. They were so concerned about status and, and who had this and that. Social economic standing was big in Corinth, just as it is big in our world. And poor families were coming into these celebrations and they had very little and others were looking down on them. And Paul says, do you, do you despise the church of God? Do you shame the poor man who has nothing? And Paul would say, you can call it the Lord's Supper. You may call it the Lord's Supper, but that's not what it is. Call it something else, but don't call that the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper is all about the giving act of Jesus on the cross who died for our sin and took our punishment and died in our place and shed his blood and dealt with the shame and all that went with the cross. And if we're going to call something the Lord's Supper, then inherent in it should be a giving attitude. It shouldn't be about class divisions or racism or anything like that. It should be about us loving each other in the diversity that exists in the body of Christ. Now, this attitude that was in the early potlucks and the Lord's Supper carried over into spiritual gifts. If you've ever done any study in these chapters, which is some of the main chapters on spiritual gifts, you'll watch scholars write that they believe that the biggest problem in Corinth was an elevation of the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues is a Greek word called glossa, G-L-O-S-S-A, or glossolalia, and it literally just means language. It's the gift of language. And there's a lot to look at when it comes to the gift of tongues, and there's a debate as to whether that gift is actually for today, and if it is for today, how should it be exercised? And we're going to get a lot of information on that in chapter 14. But suffice it to say that the Corinthians, and this is what the writers looking at the New Testament say, that the Corinthians had elevated that to such a place that they believed that the spiritual elite in the congregation had the gift of language or tongues, and that other people who were on a lower scale did not possess that gift. And we've watched that move into the modern church where you can go into some places and people will say, the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is you must speak in tongues. And some of you have been in a situation where you've been brought into a back room and somebody said, okay, just start opening your mouth until something comes out that sounds like the gift of language, right? And that's because people have had a misunderstanding about this gift. In fact, you'll find that as we read through the text, Paul will name the gift of tongues and the interpretation of tongues last on the list, as, as if to deprioritize it. Now, all the gifts are from the one same Spirit. He distributes them. Look at verse 11 of chapter 12, just to get the book in. He distributes them, does the Spirit, 12, 11, the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. So whatever gift that you have has been distributed to you by the sovereign act of God the Holy Spirit. So there should be no pride then. There should be nothing where I look down on somebody else and say, oh, you don't have the gift of language. Let's say somebody has the gift of administration or somebody has the gift of helps or maybe they have a more public gift like the gift of teaching. We would say, well, th those gifts are all important, but they are all in God's economy still given by the same Spirit for His sovereign purpose. In fact, later in the body metaphor, he will say, look, the gifts that are not seen, and he uses the idea of internal organs, 
are probably more important than the ones that you do see. Example, we spend a lot of time in front of the mirror. Is my hair looking good, right? Is everything in place? But, but your hair could be out of whack and you're going to be okay. A couple people might look at you sideways, but that's about it. But if your internal organs are not operating correctly, you could be in deep trouble. And the point is, is that that which is behind the scenes, often unseen, could be more vital to a ministry. And that's why we have to be careful that we don't think, well, this one gift is what makes somebody important. And I have, I have a lesser gift, we might think. Or you might wonder, do I have a spiritual gift? And, and how do I find out what it is? And, and some of you may be feeling inferior because you don't even know how you could help the body of Christ. I'm hoping and praying that this study will help you with some of those questions on how you discover your gift and put it into practice. But speaking in tongues appears to have been a high-status symbol or indicator for the Corinthians. And in chapter 13, verse 1, if you skip ahead for a moment, Paul writes, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, 13.1, but do not have love, I have become, loose paraphrase, a whole lot of noise. If the gifts of God, the spiritual gifts given to us by God, are not energized by love, not motivated by love. All you are. You could have the gift, the tongues of angels. But if you don't have love energizing those gifts, all you are is a lot of talk and a lot of show, but it means nothing. It's empty. And in the Corinthian church, if you can imagine for a second, people coming in and showing off with their so-called spiritual gift and saying, oh, you don't have this gift, brother. Well, we'll really pray for you. See if you can figure things out and get to our level. And that, that was the problem going on in the Corinthian church. Look, we are a body and we need each other and no gift should be elevated above another because all the gifts are vital in the operation of the body. When Paul moves into the body metaphor, he's going to say that the hand can't say to the eye, I don't need you. No, each part of the body is vital. I'm grateful that my foot doesn't wake up in the morning and say, I'm taking the day off. I'm tired of being down here. It smells. There's no glory. I'm usually covered with a sock, right? I'm out of here. No, no, no. The foot has to participate with the body. It's a vital part of the body. And so this is what Paul's going to say, and this is what's ahead of us. We're going to get into the specific, what's called the sign gifts in next Sunday's message. We're going to set the foundation today in terms of gifts. Now, I want to show you a, a passage that's important, and it's in 1 Timothy, a little bit to your right. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy 4.14. I want you to mark this verse because Paul writes to Timothy a pastoral letter, 1 Timothy 4.14, and he writes these words, which indicates that it's possible to have a gift and not be using it. Read this verse with me. 1 Timothy 4.14 says, Paul writing to Timothy, do not neglect 1 Timothy 4.14, the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance, that's another gift, prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery or the leadership of the church. Notice, don't neglect the spiritual gift within you. You know what that tells me? This is going to be heavy for some of you in terms of an interpretive uh, lens, but see, see if you could stay with me. That means, don't neglect your spiritual gift means, you ready? Apparently you can neglect it. 
Apparently, that was supposed to be a little bit funny, but that's all right. Uh, apparently, you can put a gift on the shelf that you have from God and disengage it and not use it. Now, let me ask you, for those of you who have studied Timothy's life, why do you think Timothy might have hesitated in engaging his spiritual gift? Got a, got a guess? He was young, but he was also fearful. In fact, he, he had a bent towards timidity, and I don't know the full story there, but Paul will say early in the letter, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And apparently the timidity or the fearfulness with which Timothy had to wrestle, and we all have got our issues, right? We all wrestle with our weaknesses and our perceived inadequacies and all that we think we can't do. And Timothy, who was a young up-and-coming pastor, discipled by no less than the Apostle Paul, apparently was disengaging as a pastor in Ephesus because there was a lot of difficulty, false doctrine, maybe older gentlemen who were challenging Timothy's authority. And Paul was saying, look, don't neglect your spiritual gift because you need it in order to deal with this stuff. You see, a spiritual gift is a divine enablement. A spiritual gift is more than just a natural ability. Some of us were born with natural abilities. And you could be good at certain things, and we would just say that's kind of part of your makeup. You're good at certain things. Maybe you're athletic, or maybe you, you can build things well or whatever. It's possible that even the building could be a spiritual gift, but here's the point. Spiritual gifts are more than that. They are supernatural enablements, empowering to bring glory to the head of the church, Christ, and to bless his body. And you, if you're a Christian, have at least one spiritual gift. You, have, you may have more than one, but you have at least one. And that's based on 1 Corinthians 12, 7 and other places. And so it's possible to neglect your spiritual gift. Can I ask you? Can I challenge you? Are you neglecting your spiritual gift? See, whatever your gift might be, if you're neglecting it, you're depriving the body and potentially even dishonoring the head of the church. Now, some of you may feel, well, I, I don't feel like I have a lot to contribute, or I don't even know what my spiritual gift is. How do I know that? I want to take you to a place that I think will show you. It's in Romans 12, just before 1 Corinthians. Go to Romans 12, and let me show you something that I've, I've kind of just thought about over the years that I think is a good way to consider how you discover spiritual gifts and how they they go into operation in your life. This is Romans 12. It starts with a familiar foundational couple of verses. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove or test or discover what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now keep reading. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually, we are members of one another. Now, from the foundation of Romans 12, 1 and 2, as you present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, you're not conformed to the world. Your, your mind is transformed by biblical thinking, right? You, you keep yourself in a humble place, 
And then as you do that, you're going to discover the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I'm going to park there for a second and tell you that from that foundation, Paul moves into spiritual gifts. So I think we have an indicator of how we discover and engage spiritual gifts. Did I tell you guys the story about Muhammad Ali yet in this service? Shake your head. No, I don't think I did. Sometimes the services blend together a little bit. I got to know when I told my joke. So I, I was listening to Ravi Zacharias this morning, and he was talking about Muhammad Ali was on an airplane, and the airplane hit some moderate turbulence. And so the fasten your seatbelt light went on, and everybody fastened their seatbelt except for Muhammad Ali. Now we know Muhammad Ali had a big pride issue, right? I am the greatest. That's how he tagged himself. I am the greatest. I'm the greatest. I float like a butterfly. I sting like a bee, right? That was Muhammad, right? He's a great boxer. But so the, the light came on and the stewardess is checking seatbelts and she comes to Ali and Ali doesn't have a seatbelt on. And she goes, sir, you need to fasten your seatbelt. And he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she, without missing a beat, said, yeah, and Superman don't need no airplane either. Fasten your seatbelt. <laughs> See, we got to be careful about our pride here. But as we humble ourselves and we present ourselves to God, we go right into spiritual gifts. And here's what it says. Verse 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. If serving in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another, because spiritual gifts bless the body. In Philadelphia, single Greek word, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, that's the Greek word for brotherly love there. It's, it's the body metaphor and it's family, we're a family. Give preference to one another in honor. You see, this is the main list of spiritual gifts in the New Testament are Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. The passage we're studying plus Romans 12. There's a few other places. And there's about 20 spiritual gifts, give or take, listed in these passages. I don't think, along with most other scholars, that this is an exhaustive list. There may be other gifts that God gives. And I'm not sure that all the gifts are with us all of our life. We may have some main gifts, like, for example... Uh, the gift of teaching has been something that God has blessed me with, and I would assume that I'll have that throughout my life, but there may be other gifts that God may give in a moment of time that I need for a specific situation, and maybe they're not with me forever. For example, maybe God gives me a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom in a situation, but I don't necessarily have that gift all the time. The main point is, is that you let the Holy Spirit distribute the gifts as he wills and you engage them for the benefit of the body, for the good of the body. Spiritual gifts are not about self-aggrandizement. They're not about puffing myself up and seeing myself as an elite. They're about blessing God's body and glorifying the head of the church. Back to 1 Corinthians 12. And so you have a spiritual gift and so do I. And Paul says, regarding these gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be unaware. 1 Corinthians 12, 1. See the word spiritual there? Most of you have gifts that it's italicized or it's in brackets because it's not there in verse 1. It's mentioned later. 
the word spiritual is an important Greek word to understand. It is the Greek word pneumatikos. It's spelled P-N-E-U-M-A-T-I-K-O-S. Pneumatikos. Literally, you could translate this, now concerning spirituals. Some scholars believe that this could be read in the neuter, now concerning spiritual things or spiritual gifts. Others say it should be read now concerning spiritual people or spiritual ones. Some commentators believe that Paul opens the chapter this way to address the ones who thought they were the spiritual elite. But if you're truly spiritual, what it means is that you are pneumatikos. What's that mean? Pneuma is the Greek word for spirit. So if you are truly spiritual, you're going to manifest the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Have you ever met someone who says, I'm spiritual, like I'm a spiritual person, but then they deny that Jesus is the only way to God or they deny the historic Christian faith? Well, you could claim to be spiritual, but the real question is, do you have the spirit? Are you pneumatikos? Are you one who has been endowed with the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19, if you just remind yourself, it says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit already lives in you as a gift from God to enable you, empower you, help you, etc. To be spiritual, now concerning spirituals, is the opposite of being carnal. What's a carnal person? A carnal person is worldly. They're consumed with the things of the flesh and the world. That's what they were being. In 1 Corinthians 3.1, Paul says, I can't speak to you as spiritual, but as too carnal, as too babes in Christ, because you're so consumed with the flesh. I want to address you as spiritual, but I can't. And so right now, he says, now concerning spiritual ones or spiritual things or gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be unaware about four or five times Paul addressed subjects in the New Testament that I don't want you to be ignorant, I don't want you to be unaware. And what's interesting is that they're the subjects that we seem to be most ignorant and unaware about. <laughs> they have to do with things like God working in the nation of Israel today. They have to do with righteousness by faith. They have to do with the rapture of the church. Things that have been so misunderstood and even divisive over the years. And Paul says, please, don't be ignorant about spiritual gifts. You need to know what they are and how they work. D.A. Carson calls spiritual gifts grace gifts based upon the word charisma. We'll talk about that in a second. God is the source of them. They are given as a gift. They are given not based upon merit. They are sovereignly distributed by God for his divine purposes. They are divine enablements, divine empowering to help us to glorify God and bless other people. That's what they're all about. Spiritual gifts given to us by God. Now, let's look at 1 Corinthians 12 and in verse 2. Before we move there, this is Spurgeon. He said, I'm afraid many believers will have to admit that they hardly know whether there is a Holy Spirit. Others will confess that though they have enjoyed a little of his saving work, they know almost nothing of his empowering and sanctifying influence. Few of us have participated in his operations as we might have. We have sipped where we might have drunk. We have drunk where we might have bathed. We have bathed up to the ankles where we might have found rivers to swim in, close quote. 
And so as each of us have received a special gift, a charisma, where to employ it in serving one another, listen, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, 1 Peter 4.10. God expects you to be a good steward of all the gifts you have in your life. And that includes spiritual gifts. And I believe, brothers and sisters, please hear what I'm about to say. That when you are before the bema seat of Christ on that day, it won't be for judgment for your sins. Those were paid for at the cross. But at the bema, you're going to be rewarded for your faithfulness to the gifts that the Holy Spirit gave to you. And you will lose rewards for unfaithfulness to those gifts. 1 Peter 4.10 says, Be a good steward of the multifaceted grace of God in your life. When we do this as a body, when we're all using our different gifts, we show the world who the head of the church is, Jesus. When each individual part of the body does its share, it brings growth to the body and glorifies the head and shows a lost world what Jesus looks like. Why do you think God has not given us one person all of the gifts? Why doesn't one person have every single spiritual gift on the list? Probably to keep us from being prideful. Jesus had all the gifts in operation, right? But we as a body, we need one another. I think God designed it this way so we would need one another. Amen? How many of you understand in your marriage, you probably married an opposite? Anybody? Opposites attract? Come on, raise up your hand. Go ahead, rib your spouse a little bit. Yes, it's true. Opposites attract. Now, you know what we do in marriage? Since our spouse is opposite of us, we try to make them more like us. I'm going to pray, Lord, that, the, that they change. And, and you try to make them more like you. We don't need two of you. Believe me. <laughs> we don't, right? And here's the, here's the cool thing. On a positive note, opposites attract because where you're weak, your spouse is strong. And where you're strong, they may be weak. And when the two of you come together in marriage, you come together as one and your weaknesses and strengths combine and you're stronger together. You know what we do? We tend to accentuate the weaknesses of our spouse and Focus on the weaknesses instead of celebrating the strengths. There's a little marriage advice. Put it in your pocket. You're going to need it. But that's not the main reason for the sermon. But I think it applies to the body of Christ. Because where I'm weak, one of you may be strong. Some days my faith may be weak and I'm going to need you to pray for me. Maybe you're going to be feeling weak and one day I'm going to come alongside of you and pray with you and encourage your faith. This is how it works. We need each other. The body of Christ. And when we are absent, see, the problem that we have is that we think that we just go to church. No, we are the church. And when your gifts are absent from the corporate body, the body suffers. Now look, I could operate without my arm, right? If something happened to my arm, I could still be Michael and operate. But would I be as effective as I used to be in many things? The answer is no. I can still operate. The body of Christ can still operate with missing, disengaged parts, but not at its efficiency. Can I say to you, maybe this is why the church in America suffers. Maybe this is why many times we step back and look at the church in America and we say it's impotent. We're not doing what we should do. Why? The video comes on. We need help over here. We need help over there. We need help, help, help. 
And unfortunately, a lot of us go, you know, somebody else. I don't think that's my gift. Okay, I feel you. We're preaching on that right now. But how about you serve in the area where you are gifted? See, if we want the change to happen, it's going to be the body. Now, Paul says in verse 2, we only got through one verse. We got to move quickly. 1 Corinthians 12, 2 says, You know that when you were pagans, and uh, Paul is not afraid to say you used to be a pagan. I don't recommend this in your witnessing in your neighborhood. Like, don't walk out your front door and say, Hey, pagan neighbor, how you doing, pagan? Can I borrow your lawnmower? I'll pray over it after I'm done. No, we don't want to do that. But look, a lot of them used to be pagans. You say, well, what's a pagan? A pagan is someone who worship a false god outside of the true and living God. That's what paganism is. When you were pagans in this cosmopolitan city, uh, you know, so much paganism going on, so many temples, etc., you were led astray to the dumb or mute idols however you were led, NIV. Somehow or another, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Now, as Paul continues to want them to not be ignorant, he says, do you remember your old life? How many of you can think back for a moment to a time when maybe you were marching to the drum of the prince of the power of the air? You were, you were a part of the procession to the idols of the world, and you serve them. Some of us who become Christians say, man, I was a good soldier of Satan. Now I'm going to be a better soldier for Christ. Amen? Paul, using an image, and here's how it happened in these ancient cities a very common occurrence was a festival where people would walk down a sacred way as pagans they would walk down this sacred path and they would go to a temple of an idol and they would basically give their allegiance to the idol and it, was, it seemed like a very common occurrence in the ancient world that you might be somewhere working or having lunch and all of a sudden a procession would come by and the procession was a pagan procession. In fact, the Christians started calling them the devil's procession. And these people would be walking down the sacred path, and some of us have seen it in other religions where people during certain times of the year, maybe they'll, they'll, they'll crawl on their hands and knees or leave an offering for some statue or idol. It's something like that. And it was a common occurrence in the city. And Paul says, some of you, you used to do that. You used to be part of these pagan processions and you'd walk down these sacred ways and you'd try to appease these false gods and goddesses. That's not your life anymore. Now you're to be led by the Spirit. You don't walk that way anymore. You don't walk to the dumb idols who have eyes but cannot see, hands but they cannot feel, nose but they cannot smell. You got it. Psalm 115, Paul said, that's what you used to do. Now you're led by the living God. Now you're alive in the Spirit. Now you need to let Him lead you. And all believers have the Spirit. None is superior to another in the sense of spiritual gifts. So now you need to be led by the Spirit. How would the Spirit lead you? Not into pride. Not into looking down on other believers, but to love. Therefore, I make known to you, verse 3, that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you had a dozen commentaries and you read them on 1 Corinthians, here's what many evangelical commentators believe is happening as they try to put together the backdrop in Corinth. 
In Corinth, they had what was called the mystery religions, and they had temples to Dionysius and uh, Aphrodite, and they had uh, just a lot of different gods and goddesses. Asclepius was the god of healing, and Dionysius was the god of wine. People would go into his temple. They would get intoxicated. We saw people getting drunk in chapter 11. That is corrected. They would go in there, and they would, they would get drunk on wine, and they would go into this temple and gorge on raw meat. Just sounds weird, but this is what they would do. And they believed that the wine and getting intoxicated brought them in touch with the god or goddess, the wine god, let's say. And some of them went into what's called an ecstatic utterance. They would start losing control. And they would start giving off words. Sometimes you could make sense of the words. Sometimes you could not. And so many scholars believe that to try to reconstruct the picture, apparently some of the Corinthians in the pagan mystery religions who, were, who used to do this were in Christian worship, saying they had the gift of tongues, went into some sort of uncontrolled utterance and started to say that Jesus is accursed. Now, that is an interesting thought, but it seems to me to be a little far-fetched. That Christians would be in worship and be saying, Jesus is accursed. Jesus is accursed. Now, if you've been around the Christian church for a while, we've seen some weird things happen in the church. We've seen some movements where people are flopping around like fish. And I've, seen, I've heard some recordings where people are barking like dogs and claiming it's the Holy Spirit. Or some, some recordings I've heard it even sounded like a haunted house. It's the Holy Spirit. Well, I, I'm sorry, I'm not sure that that's the Spirit of God, okay? People will come out of the baptistry and they're flopping around doing that, you know, dance thing. And, oh, it's the Spirit! Look, I, I'm not sure that that's the Holy Spirit. See, I don't think the Holy Spirit is ever going to show something that's chaos and out of order and even undiscernible, as we'll see in chapter 14. So some believe that that's what was happening. But here's another thought. Some people apparently connected with the church were saying, see the word accursed in verse 3? That's the Greek word anathema. And it is true that when Jesus was on the cross, uh, it says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So we could say, well, Jesus was under the curse of sin and death for those moments on the cross as he paid the sin debt of the world. But Jesus isn't on the cross anymore. He's at the right hand of the Father. So it would be wrong. You could say in a past tense, yeah, Jesus was under the wrath of God in my place, but now he's at the right hand of the Father. The cross is over. He's only going to die once. Who in the world would say Jesus is a curse in a Christian worship setting? But where would one possibly say that? Do you know that the guy that wrote this letter may have said that? Because before he was Paul, he was Saul. And in Acts 26, it says that he was trying to get people to blaspheme, and we infer the name of Jesus. He was trying to get people to say, as he gives his own testimony, Jesus is accursed. Do you know that the man that wrote this letter may have said that? That Jesus is anathema? And then changed to Jesus is Lord? And maybe in your past, you said the same thing. Do you know who was probably bent towards saying Jesus is anathema? Jewish people. 
connected to the church. And there's a letter between a uh, church father, I think it was Tertullian, writing back and forth to a rabbi named Trypho. And the rabbi admits to the church father that Jews are blaspheming the name of Jesus in synagogues and saying that he is anathema. That Jesus is anathema. And if you think with me, if you know a little bit about this, that's probably still going on today. Where in certain circles, people say, Jesus, anathema. It's the strongest Greek word Paul could have used. Paul may have said it himself, but if he said it, and he may have, would it have been under the guidance or inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Nope. Did Paul think he was religious when he said it? Yes. He thought he was doing service to God by trying to destroy the church. Do you hear what I'm saying, folks? Some people think they're religious, but they are void of the Spirit. In fact, 1 John 2.23 says, If you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. As the old commercial used to say, you can't have one without the other. That's a way to remember that if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. People say, I believe in God, but I, I don't believe in Jesus. No, wait a minute. Jesus is part of the triune God. Now, you may not fully understand yet that there's room for working through stuff. But if you say Jesus is anathema, Paul, when he was Saul, would not have been speaking by the Holy Spirit. Amen? No way. Nobody's going to say that against God the Son, except if it's from the flesh or even Satan. Jesus said to the religious leaders in John 8, you're of your father the devil. They were questioning his identity, and there was this whole debate around who Jesus is in John chapter 8. If you're with me, what Paul is simply saying is that if you have the Holy Spirit, and all Christians do, you're going to say, Jesus is Lord. That's even a baptismal formula from the early church. And that's actually the saving confession of all Christians. The moment I genuinely said, Jesus is Lord, I receive you, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior. What happened to me? What happened to you? I was born again of the Holy Spirit. Now, you remember in John chapter 3, a guy named Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. He says, teacher, rabbi, we know that no one can do the works that you do unless he's from God. We can see that God is with you. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, I tell you the truth, unless one is born again, he will not, remember, see the kingdom of God. He says in verse 5, John 3, unless one is born of water and the spirit, that is, you've got to have a spiritual birth, one will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is it. If you've got the Spirit, you're going to say Jesus is Lord. Now you say, Pastor Michael, what's Paul's big point here? Simply this. All Christians have the Spirit. All Christians have at least one spiritual gift. There's no elitism here. There's none of that. We are all one. If you have the Spirit, then you're going to say Jesus is Lord. You would not say Jesus is accursed. Someone can make a false confession saying, Lord, Lord, and not know Jesus. But let's just assume here a positive, a, a genuine, authentic confession means you have the Spirit. The, when you say Jesus is Lord, you're born again of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit lives in you. You're regenerated, sealed with the Holy Spirit. If you've done that, you're born again. You may have felt something, you may not have, but you're born again. 
1995, we moved into our neighborhood, and uh, they had the, the uh, sign there, the, the little notch where the real estate sign goes. We bought the house. It was November of that year. And so we took the real estate, real estate sign went out, and I was mentoring a young man at this time, and we built a huge wooden cross and put it in the little notch. And I'm like, oh, it's good. Christmas time's coming. Let, let's make a statement right away in the neighborhood. So a little man, old man, he was the next-door neighbor up one house from us, came walking by. He's like, welcome to the neighborhood. And he saw this huge cross, and he goes, you're not one of those born-againers, are you? And I said, yes, sir, I am. I said, sir, there's no other kind of Christian than a born-again Christian. I beg to differ, young man, he said. I read the Greek New Testament. I read Greek. And I said, well, if you read Greek, then read the Greek of John 3, 3 and John 3, 5. You must be born again. Well, all of a sudden, me and the old man squared off. He dropped his cane. Spit began to fly. It was, we were going at it. Let me tell you something, old man. <laughs> hey, whippersnapper, he said. The dog went into his doghouse. Family walked inside. And for 45 minutes, we went at it, me and the old guy, right? He tells me, I live by the Sermon on the Mount. And I said, no, you don't, sir. <laughs> Nobody lives by the Sermon on the Mount, right? And so we went back and forth. And he was telling me, it, there's, a, there's, normal, there's Christians and then there's the born-againers. The born-againers have that multicolored wig at the football game. <laughs> repent! John 3, 3, repent! Now, here's the truth of the matter. It may not be as out there as some people think, but the truth is you've got to be born again from above. You've got to have a new birth. And when you have the new birth, you get the Holy Spirit. You begin to learn how to walk by the Spirit. Galatians 4, 6 says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You see, the Holy Spirit will be working around a confession made to God. Now, I'm not going to get into the, for those of you who know about these debates, Calvinism and Arminianism, and how much of it is the spirit and how much it is of man. Does he have some part, free will? What, how's the pie break down? Here's the point. When someone says Jesus is Lord genuinely, the Holy Spirit is right there working. And the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of every Christian. That's the point. All Christians are pneumaticas. They're all spiritual. Because nobody can say Jesus is Lord except by the spirit. So stop with the elitism. Verse 4 will move quickly. Now, there are varieties of gifts. See the word gifts there? That's charisma. It's the word for grace, charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, with an M-A ending on the end. Now, there are various charismas where we get the idea of charismatic. There are varieties of charismas or grace gifts, but the same what? The same pneuma, the same spirit, same source. Yes, there's a variety of gifts we all have, but the one source is God. These are varieties, are their allotments, distributions, apportionments that come from God. We get various charismas that are a mark of grace. Verse 5. There are varieties of ministries. Many of you are involved in some form of ministry, children's ministry, men's, women's. Uh, you do some other type of ministry, missions, etc., but maybe, just maybe, God is asking you to start a ministry. Maybe it doesn't need to be one of the traditional ministries. What's God been putting on your heart? What is your ministry? There's a variety of them, but the same Lord. That's the Greek word, kurios. 
uh, very often used of Jesus himself. And then verse 6, there are varieties of effects. The word for effects means that which energizes, but the same God, there's the word theos, who works all things in all persons. Can you see, Bible students, overtones of the Trinity? In verse 4, you have the Spirit. In verse 5, you have the Lord. In verse 6, you have God. You have pneuma, kurios, and theos. That is, the triune God rejoices to give gifts to his people. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Jesus, getting ready to go to heaven, says, I will give you another helper. God is a giver, and he gives gifts that keep on giving. Amen? Even when I'm tired, poured out, sick and tired, whatever it may be, he keeps pouring out grace. He says, get in the game, get engaged, and I'll give you what you need. God delights to bless his people. And so fan the gift into flame. Final verse. But to each one, there's no exception. You are included here. But to each one, to each Christian, is given the manifestation of the Spirit, of the pneuma, the Holy Spirit. Why does he give the manifestations? Therefore, the common good. Manifestation is a word that means to make known, to make clear, to make evident to the church and to the world. See, the manifestations are given that we might manifest God in our community, right? So that we might show who he is. And they're given for what? The common good, sumpheron in Greek means literally to bring us together so that we can bear together or bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. Why does God give spiritual gifts? So that we'll be healthy, so that we'll be better, so that we'll manifest who he is to the church and the world, and so that we'll bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. Do you know that the word sumphero, meaning to bring us together, the gifts that we'll deal with next week have divided the church. Would you agree? Gift of tongues, prophecy, word of wisdom, word of knowledge. What some scholars call the sign gifts or what seem to be the more supernatural gifts this has divided the church. Denominational lines, uh, practices in the church, it's pushed people away. What was supposed to bring us together, are you ready, has torn us apart. As the devil has gotten a foothold in the church. For many of the same reasons, elitism, looking down on other people, oh, you guys don't have these gifts? Well, then you're not spirit-filled. We're spirit-filled over here, down the street, you're not spirit-filled. And class distinctions and elitism happens. And the Lord of the church, what do you think he thinks of it? When he prayed that we would be one in John 17, what do you think he thinks of it? When we divide along these lines, because, often because of abuse or pride. Charles Stanley says, when people serve within the context of their gifts, they seem to do it effortlessly. There is little stress and they don't tire easily, close quote. Here's just a few things, a few thoughts. What do you love? What are you good at? When you do something and other people say, man, you're good at that, that's probably your spiritual gift. When you thrive in something, when you enjoy doing it, when it seems like there's a blessing attached to that effort, 
When someone else tells you, man, you're good at that. Wow, look at how you do that so well. That's in all likelihood your spiritual gift. And so you, you offer yourself and you say, God, show me my gifts and help me engage them. Would you bow with me? Father, as we wrap up this message, we bow before your holy throne. Thank you that you are the good gift giver. You've asked us to take our gifts and give them away to maybe we could say re-gift them to others uh, in the best sense of that word, to get things from our God and give them away and keep giving. You said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And Lord, sometimes we, we, we need some help figuring out what it is that we're called to do, how you've gifted us. But once we do, help us not neglect our spiritual gift. Let us thrive in being a, an essential, effective part of the body, that we might mature and glorify the one who is the head of the church, Christ. Thank you for this wonderful congregation, Father. So many times, so many needs have been met, whether it's a Sunday school room being built in a, in a church in Mexico, a person who needed a surgery, a car wash for the youth, where almost $2,000 is given for camp. So much generosity, so many folks who visit in hospitals and pray with the hurting and open up their homes to hospitality and Bible study and people supporting missionaries and children who don't have much and they adopt them and in other countries and even here at home. The camp going on right now, as many of our folks are down at Royal Family Kids Camp ministering to foster kids, what a beautiful expression of the body of Jesus Christ. We are your body and we thank you that you've gifted us to bring you glory, but to make a difference in people's lives. And Lord, we want to do that. We want to do that because of all you've done for us. You take a few moments right now and just spend a little time seeking the face of your Father. Maybe you're at a point where you'd say, Lord, I just need to know what my gifts are. Help me to discover them. Help me to pursue a discovery of them. Maybe for you it's, Father, I just need to re-engage that gift. It's been too long, and I want to be, be on the field in the game. Maybe for you, you would say, I don't even know if I can be useful. Well, you can, because the same God lives in you. And if you're not sure you're a Christian, would you keep your head and heart bowed and just it's time for you to pray Jesus is Lord. If he's been pulling on you and tugging and you haven't made it official yet, it's time to surrender. You can be born again to this living hope we talked about. You can be born from above. You can get a new start and a new heart, but you must ask him something like this. Lord Jesus, would you pray it if it's you? Come into my life. I believe that you died on that terrible cross for me to take my sin, my shame, my judgment. I believe that you rose from the grave and I want to confess that Jesus is Lord. Please make me your child. Please forgive me of my sin. Thank you that you paid for my sins in full at the cross. I turn my life over to you. Pray that you'd fill me with your spirit. Show me how to serve you best. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Father, for those who have prayed, may you bless them. May you cause many to be born again if, 
Maybe some will listen to this later. May you lift burdens off folks' shoulders. May you give us an energy and a zeal for these things. And may you bless your people richly in Jesus' name.